Life's a plate of cookie dough And you can try to eat it slow But you can miss it out So do it and set it and work out Hey, what's up? I'm Dope's fearless leader and sober entrepreneur, Kelsey Moreira. Each episode, you'll hear raw conversations that feed your soul with entrepreneurs, movers, shakers, and honestly, just plain badasses. These awesome humans have navigated life's challenges and are creating a bright future. So let's dig in. You're listening to Dope's Soberpreneur. Well, I'm looking forward to diving into this conversation and learning more about your journey. You're a mom of three, a lacrosse coach, founder and owner of HawkFit, and all in large part thanks to your four years of sobriety. Congratulations. You've experienced some real ups and downs on your mental health journey through a diagnosis with obsessive compulsive disorder and a relapse as part of your recovery story, but you're thriving today. And I know sharing your journey will help someone else out there feel less alone. So with that, a big giant warm welcome, Leslie, to Sober Printer. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, at Dope, you know, we have the Dope for Hope pledge and we talk about answering straight up when someone asks, how are you? So we don't have to do that. I'm good. I'm good. You, I'm good. Let's go cut to it. Tell me one high and one low from the last week for you. Okay. Oh, I got somebody to choose from. One high for me is I am back on the lacrosse field with my players, which is huge for me because obviously we've had a little bit of a break, if you will from COVID. So it's been really nice to get back out on the field and and see some of the players I haven't seen in a while. I guess the downfall of last week, we're quite smoky here in in Alberta right now. We've got fires in the provinces on either side of us. So we're kind of dealing with that and with smoke brings headaches and, you know, just not feeling super awesome. So hopefully that'll sort itself out in the next little bit. So that's, I think that's a low for the last week for sure. Yeah. The fires are so wild. You know, I was in San Francisco when the Paradise fire was going on. I don't know if you remember hearing about this. And it was, I mean, just wild. Yeah. And uh, yeah, anybody who has any sort of respiratory issues, not a good time for them right now. So, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll get through it. Yeah. Well, you get through it. That's what life's about. The highs and the lows. Thanks for sharing that. Well, let's take it way back first to start. Kind of talk to me about Little Less. <laughs> Where'd you grow up? What was your family like? What were you like as Little Less? Well, let's see. I grew up out east in Ontario. I was born and raised there in Whitby, Ontario. And I got into lacrosse when I was 14 in high school. My basketball coach decided that she was going to start coaching a lacrosse team and said, hey, you know, you might want to come out and try it because basketball and lacrosse are very similar. And so, you know, I thought, well, I don't have a spring sport. So sure, I'll, I'll come out and try it. And I fell in love with it. And she actually ended up being my Team Canada coach as well. So I kind of went through the paces there, went through Team Ontario into onto Team Canada. Huge highlight in my life. But yes, all the while I was struggling with obsessive compulsive disorder and probably since the age of nine. And I just didn't have any clue what it was. I just thought, you know man, I'm like really weird. I do weird things. And, you know, my parents would be like, why are you doing that? Like, <laughs> I don't understand. And so it was tough, but I think that sports and all of those things really got me through. Otherwise, I don't know where I'd be because it was horrendous dealing with that and not knowing that it was something, right? Just thinking there was something off about me and it just caused a lot of anxiety and a lot of depression, obviously, as well. So like a confusion of sorts, you know, and just like this confusion of why. Totally. What were some of the things it was manifesting as? Mine were intrusive thoughts. So mm-hmm. I was really good at hiding any sort of my rituals or anything like that. So mine was more like a thought-based process where I would 
think a horrible thought and I'd have to reverse it, right? So that might be praying to God or, you know, saying something a certain amount of times or things like that so that I would reverse that effect, hoping that it wouldn't happen. And so Mm -hmm. with a lot of that, so you wouldn't necessarily see me tapping on anything or things like that. It was mostly in my head, but I did go through the compulsive hand washing wouldn't want to touch towels. So, you know, because towels to me were dirty. And so then I would have like cracked raw hands. That was when my parents were like, like, what are you doing to yourself? Right? Like, you know, dry your hands and put cream on them. And I was like, no, you know, like I'm not touching towels. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was, it was super stressful. When I look back on it, I'm like, how did I make it through school and sports and all that stuff when I was dealing with that? But I was lucky that I did have a good support system within the school. I I had a lot of coaches and teachers that were really supportive and kind of, you know, caught on that something was going on and and would sit me down and be like, hey, you know, tell me what's happening here. Like, let's chat about it. Yeah, it's so much structure in school sports. When I think about that, it gave you a lot of maybe structure and focus and something else to be involved in. Also that visibility for other adults to have close contact with you throughout these other times to kind of see this behavior start to come to life in some physical manifestation where they could notice it or question it and try to understand maybe that there was something going on. So I am very envious of you in all these sports. I think that's awesome that they pushed you into so many because I ended up with the opposite complex of like, I didn't try new things. Like, or, you know, I'd try something once, but if I wasn't good at it, I was just done. And like, of course, you're not good at lacrosse the first time you try lacrosse. You need to keep going. So it's like, I had this mindset of like, I just do things that I know I'm good at. (laughs) I just like steered clear of all these sports and whatnot. I did gymnastics, lots of like individual things through the years. I almost couldn't handle the pressure of this team performance. So I think there's so much to gain. Fair, but sad. (laughs) But I think there's so much to gain from like the team environment just for kids. I I look at like that probably gave you a lot of valuable skills and support going through that stage of your journey. So what's the next step with that? 22, I believe you said you were when you got diagnosed. Yes. And kind of got to understand this is what it is. Yeah. At 21, that was a horrible, horrible year for me. I had to leave school, university. It got to the point I had made it through first year. I had made it through second year, but it was right before the final exams and I just crumbled and I couldn't do it. And I called my mom and she came out to St. Catherine's where I was going to school. And I just said, I can't do it. I can't do the exams. And so she actually spoke to the school on my behalf and managed to get basically what it is, is you get the mark for the course. So whatever I had at the end of the course was my mark. But it shows up as a agrotat or ergotat status on your on your transcript, which is sort of crummy because anybody who looks at it goes like, what's what's that? Like you didn't get a mark, you got an AG, right? But I just I didn't care at that point. I was like, I I just can't do this. And so my mom took me to a hospital in Hamilton on our way back home. And I saw a uh, a very well-known doctor there that specialized in obsessive compulsive disorder. And he did see me and it was like a no-brainer to him. It was like, no, this is what you have. And it was like, oh, after all these years, I just thought I just can't handle the pressure or I can't make it through school. And that's not like me. You know, I usually can do this. And so it was such a relief to finally hear and to have it labeled, if you will. It's just something to understand. And then I could read about it and I could learn about it and I could be put into cognitive behavioral therapy. I was medicated, all of those things. And so yes, the rest of that year was pretty tough, especially when everyone was going back to school and I wasn't. That was a huge, 
learning curve for me. And I was, it was quite upsetting. And that year, that's where I think my alcoholism definitely spiraled and it was probably at its worst. And, you know, cause I was like, I don't want to deal with anything. So I'll just drink it away. Right. And so obviously got me into some precarious situations that were not ideal. So after that year, I think getting back into school was my godsend. It was okay. Things are going to work out. This is all going to work out. And where did the alcohol use go from there? So kind of this coping mechanism of like, look, I don't want to take this on. But where did that lead you to and winding up, you know, where you are now deciding to be in sobriety? Well, it didn't go away. It was definitely still, you know, university drinking for my last two years. And then after that, I still would party, you know, with friends, things like that. And I ended up meeting my husband out in Ontario. He's from Alberta, where he was living in Alberta for quite some time came back to Ontario and we met and, and that was life, right? Like you drank and we had bonfires and all that kind of stuff. And it was like, yeah, Les does stupid stuff when she's drunk. It's not like, oh, I think Les might have a problem. So then we moved out to Alberta and I ended up getting pregnant quite quickly after we moved out here. So obviously that stopped drinking for at least the nine months, <laughs> but I was right back to it as soon as I had my first and it was still progressively not fabulous over the next couple of years. And so I didn't end up getting sober until it would have been 2012. How was that stage of life? You know, you have the baby and then it's like, well, I just went nine months without drinking. Any thought at that time of like, hmm, I wish I could make this different than I was when I was drinking before? Or was it, you know, really not even any awareness that like there was maybe a problem with the way you were using alcohol or how it was affecting your life? Actually, there was an awareness because I found out... (laughs) actually just recently that my daughter is tongue-tied and we didn't know that back in the day, but typically when a baby is tongue-tied, they have a hard time breastfeeding. And so I think I only breastfed her for like maybe a week or two. And then it was to the bottle. And I was thinking that the reason why I did that is because I wanted to drink because I started drinking again and it was like, okay, well I put her on the bottle because I wanted to drink. So there was that guilt. And so then I did stop drinking for maybe maybe a year back then, actually, when she was little. So because it it was a guilt thing, I was like, okay, did I really do that? Like, did I switch her to the bottle because I wanted to be able to drink and have that freedom? And so then I stopped and then it just slowly creeps back up on you and started drinking again. We have Calgary Stampede out here that happens every year in July. And I think that was the first time I started drinking again because we were going to go see the Tragically Hip and it's kind of part and parcel with it, right? So what is the Calgary Stampede? Oh, it's like a huge stampede. People usually come from all over the world to to the stampede. There's chuck wagon races and rides. It's like a huge... Like a bull stampede? Like a Barcelona mode of like the bull is going to come down, like everyone run out of the way? Not quite like that. Okay, okay. I'm like... (laughs) The bulls would be contained. Yeah. Uh, Okay, okay. Like a rodeo? Yeah, like a rodeo. Okay, okay. I got my Texas roots in there, so okay. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Just ready to party. Good time. Everyone lets... Oh, huge... Oh gosh, they joke about how like the pregnancy rates go up and divorce rates like after Stampede. That's just the way it is, right? I don't frequent Stampede anymore, but it just kind of came with the territory. And so kind of slipped back in there and then things progressively get worse. And 2012 was another big eye opener. And that's when I I quit for three years. What was the eye opener? What kind of set off the the three-year journey? My husband and I were out and, you know, having a good time, having dinner. But to me, I mean, I take things to the extreme. So 
I wasn't ready to go home. My husband was, and we were just kind of at a pub that was really close to the house. And my daughter had hockey the next day. So he's like, no, we really got to get home. Right. And I was like, no, I'm not ready to go home. Right. And then start talking to these people who are playing cool and kind of befriended them. I have no idea who they are. And then, so he did leave, like thinking like I'd be home a couple hours later, like nothing big. Right. And I ended up, I mean, a lot of this night is quite blurry, but I ended up going downtown Calgary with random dude, have no idea who he is, went to a Chinese restaurant. It looks as though I took a cab home, like super scary because I just didn't remember stuff. So obviously that came to a head with my husband and I, it was not a good time. You know, it was like, I'm really thankful that he stuck with me through all these things because I'm not sure I would have if the tables were turned because I was in a really bad place. So it goes a lot to show that he's very supportive and kind of got me through that. But we did separate because it was not good. Mm -hmm. And so the separation, and I'm sorry you went through this and I resonate just absolutely so much with your story. This idea, I had the same mentality of like, I just never wanted the party to end. You just never wanted the fun to stop. You just wanted to keep going. And I would literally do exactly that, convince my friends if they wanted to leave that I knew this other group of people and I'd be fine. I'm going to hang out with them. They'll take me home. I have a ride. I didn't have a ride. I passed out on the sidewalk. Some strangers drove me home. Like craziness, you know, just very interesting how alcohol can just take over that brain. But I had such a similar mindset of being like, I just never want this to end. So the feeling for your husband and totally amazing what alcohol allows us to do to people we love is just mask this like, I would never want to make this person close to me feel that way. But alcohol is conniving like that and, and ends up making you do these things. So you separate, but he does stick with you. You guys work through things. What's the next three years hold? And how does that come to an end? The next three years, when I look back on them, were incredible. And that's where I really kicked myself because I was like, life was so good. You know, I had my son in 2014. So I was, you know, sober leading up to that. And I was sober after I had him. Life was great. And I would tell anybody that, right? Like it was like, life was perfect. You know, I mean, aside from the other stresses, you know, I mean, alcoholism, things like that, it runs in my family. So I've been dealing with these things for many, many, many years. But then just after my son was born, my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And so we were dealing with that. And that was quite a journey that didn't affect my sobriety. I was working at a in an environment that everything revolved around drinking and, you know, not saying that anybody forced me to drink. Cause that's, that's not what it is. You know, this was my choice, but literally uh, it would have been 2016. We had a work party at a place where you learn how to make meals, things like that. And I don't know why I thought that the drink that they handed you when you walked in the door would be non-alcoholic, but it wasn't, it was alcohol. So as soon as I took a sip, it was game over. I was like, well, I've done it now. So I might as well, you know, continue on. Got absolutely hammered that night. Felt like the worst I've ever felt the next day with the guilt and all of that. And and so then it was like, well, again, started it now, might as well just keep going. So that next year, I, I wasn't drinking a lot the next year, but it was like any sort of get togethers, things like that. They, you know, included drinking and it was kind of right back to where I was before. Yeah. Wow. One sip and it's through, you know, it's like people say that where they're like, oh, you know, don't even have a sip. Be careful. And it's like, it's literally that example of one sip and you just think, well, it's it's already happened. It's over. I hope for anyone else listening that, that gets in that situation, just try. I guess my advice would be try and hold your ground. One sip has happened. It's not too late to set it down and say, I'm sorry, this has alcohol. I actually don't drink. 
my mom and I, I, I just mentioned to you, you know, she's also sober. We took a little overnight trip to Scottsdale, Arizona, and we're at this restaurant and we ask, you know, do you guys have any non-alcoholic beers? And the, she starts talking about a couple she thinks it is and whatever. Let me grab someone else. I think he knows. And then he's very confident, like, oh, we have this one called blank. It's really great. People, you know, who want an NA drink, like really like it. And I'm like, wow, that's really interesting. I haven't heard of this beer. And I'm like, not not trying to brag, but pretty well versed in non-alcoholic yeah. <laughs> beers. So I was like, wow, this is like one I've really never heard of. I'm super excited to try it. Yes, you know, because like I do occasionally find a new brand that's doing NA. It's growing like crazy. So the, the woman brings over, starts pouring it into the chilled glasses and sets the glasses down. And just as she's about to walk away with the bottles, I was like, could you actually leave one of the bottles? I haven't had this NA before. And I'm really excited to like, I just want to read the label and like learn more about it. Not even thinking like, let me check if it's. If it has alcohol. Yeah. This isn't NA. This is 5% alcohol. These are real. These are, you know, this is whatever the name again. And I'm like, what? You know, and it was 111 outside. My mom and I were about to chug those, you know, like we would have, <laughs> we would have downed it so fast had we taken a sip and like, thank God both of us didn't pick it up. And then I asked for, to see the bottle. Thank my marketing brain because I was half like, oh, I want to see how they designed the label. <laughs> I'm really into packaging. But yeah, it's like, wow, you just have to be so careful out there. There is such a growing world of mocktails and non-alcoholic drinks, but you just never know. I've had the same thing happen with a Bloody Mary. My brother was getting a regular one. I asked for a virgin. Two with alcohol came out and I had him you know, try it first. Sure enough, we asked and they said there was a slip up in the back. So you just have to be so careful. And it's my biggest fear. It is my biggest fear. Like anytime I would go to Mexico, I'd be like, can you try this first? Because I just want to make sure, right? I mean, I'm smelling it. And it's like, pita colada is like, no matter whether there's alcohol or not, they smell like alcohol to me. And so it's like, it's super scary. So I would tell the waiter, I was like, I'm pregnant, right? Like I would just, I would just make up something so that they wouldn't, because it's not as serious to some people, right? And so they're like, okay, whatever. If she has a drink, like it's no big deal, right? But it is, it's a huge deal. Totally. I'm sorry that that was the fate for the three-year streak. So how long is this rendezvous for you back in the, the land of booze? And, and how was oh, your partner she... through it? You know, how was your husband through that time realizing this step back? Yeah, it was interesting because so when that had happened, he didn't drink that night and he was more like, how do you feel? How did this make you feel? And I was like, this is horrible. But then yet, yet I'd still drink, right? And so he did start to drink again as well. So nothing serious, but he did start to drink as well. And my brother and his wife got married in Las Vegas and we had drank. And then he was just kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm over it. You know, he had stopped for the same amount of time as me. Not necessarily for the same reasons. He didn't have a problem. I think it was more to support me. And just, we just didn't want it around. So then Vegas, and then we went on a work trip to Mexico. And I remembered like, even my boss was like, okay, so what's our signal if I feel like, you know, maybe things are getting too much for you, right? Like throw you a bottle of water or something like that. And I was like, like, seriously, you guys don't have to worry. I'm fine. I'm fine. And, and no, I wasn't fine. It was horrible. And I was an idiot. And yeah, so then you would think that would have been the kicker. And it wasn't. It was about five months later, but two of my girlfriends came over and they love beer. They love all sorts of different types of beer. They had brought beer and, and I just decided, you know, because do you want one? Yeah. So then I ended up having one that I had one with my neighbor and I had only had the two, but it was the same thing. It was, you know, my husband asked me the next day, how did that make you feel? I was like, I'm done. I'm done. You know, the fact that I had to have that one with my neighbor, like that was to me, I was like, I'm done. So then it's, I've been sober ever since. It's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. The little and the big moments all together lead you to the final decision. I think some people wait for this cataclysmic moment. It's like, is it going to come? Is there going to be some moment where I'm just like, the whole world has fallen down. I've lost everything and now I'll be done. It's like, 
for everyone, the journey looks so different. And it's often just these little steps along the way that make you recognize there might be something wrong, make you have these feelings of, man, I never want to do this again. And then other people telling you their concerns, et cetera. And then enough is enough at some points. You know, it's so interesting about the work side of it. At Dope, we do a ton around mental health and addiction recovery in the workplace. How can I be supportive for my employees to talk about what's really going on in their life? We recently became a recovery-friendly workplace designated by the state of Nevada, all this fun stuff. Like, I love that these programs exist to help employers have the tools they need because so many employers probably wouldn't even have, you know, been in that position where you felt comfortable enough, employees at least, you know, feeling comfortable enough to go to the employer and say, hey, I have a problem, you know, with alcohol or for them to know that kind of relationships going on or that you used to be sober and now you drink. So you felt comfortable enough to kind of share this with your boss. What was that discussion like or how was it received at work? I suppose I went through both abouts of where, you know, something had happened and I'd stopped when I was working at this workplace. And so, I mean, she was very aware of that. And I did talk to her all about, you know, I talked to her all the time about it. She was very open with me and I was very open with her. So it was good to have that. It was just unfortunate that so many things had to include alcohol, right? It was like, there was no other option, if you will. And it does start to wear on you. And I think before that Christmas party, because I had been to other Christmas parties where, you know, we had a blast and we were all just completely licked, right? So before I'd gone to that Christmas party, I was really starting to sort of feel like, I'm like, this is crap. Like, how come, you know, like, this is crap that I can't drink like other people and not be completely obliterated all the time. And it wasn't necessarily even that because there were other people that it was the same thing, right? But they weren't necessarily like, hmm, I might have a problem, you know? And so I was already starting to feel like this sucks you know, feeling sorry for myself. And so I don't think that helps with, <laughs> you know, then all of a sudden I take a drink and I'm like, well, okay, perfect. You know, here's my lead way. Like I can just do it. Right. Yeah. Hugely passionate about this. I think from such a place of just pure, I think ignorance, not thinking about it, right. The people organizing the events and, and making these happy hours happen all the time. And like, that's where the real bonding is happening and the real yeah. kind of insider information from management and all of that is going on over alcohol so often. And I don't think they're doing it to be like, Hey, I hope we really ostracize all the people right. who are in or seeking <laughs> recovery in our workplace. But it sure enough is how it ends up happening that, you know, Literally, you could cost someone their sobriety by getting these tips over the edge where they're like, you know what? I don't want to be the odd man out today. I just, sure, I'll have a Manhattan as well. You know, I remember I started drinking bourbon because I was trying to fit in with the sales guy. You know, I was on a trip wow. um, visiting Dell in Austin. And I remember like it was literally seven other guys, all 40 plus, you know, that I'm here on this business trip with. And they all ordered a scotch like me. And I'm like, Yep, one more for me, you know, and like I, yeah. maybe I would have just had like a light beer or something otherwise, but it was like this you do just naturally get that mentality that I need to be up with them. And so I think about, man, if I, you know, had been in that sort of more sales role and whatnot in sobriety, like it'd be really challenging. And then all the little things in between, just the happy hours, the, like you said, the Christmas parties and all this, it's just so oriented around alcohol. So to any yeah. employers out there listening, just consider that <laughs> the holiday season's coming, you know, try and think about having some real not only an NA option, like, oh, let's have some water or some sparkling waters. Think about like a real nice mocktail or really doing mm -hmm. a little bit of research, literally just Google non-alcoholic beers, well-being breweries, like they ship across the country, awesome non-alcoholic beers and interesting drinks you could make where the person who doesn't drink won't feel like, oh, well, I got the kid's cup, you know, like I'm going yeah, yeah. to know I'm not <laughs> drinking, have something they can look forward to too. So thank you for bringing that up. So if you could go back and talk to Les at the start of this journey, what would you tell yourself? I would probably tell myself, 
just think twice. I was kind of like a fly by the seat of my pants. That That is typically how I am. I'm not a huge planner. I typically do things as they come. Think it out a little bit. What will the circumstances look like after this? You know, really think about it and don't just dive into things, right? Like you do have to think about things a little bit before you do them. So I think that would be my biggest piece of advice to myself for sure. Like consider that cause and effect, you know, telling yourself to kind of pause and say like, what's the effect of doing this choice? A little pro and con list in your head before you make a decision, yeah. reduce that impulsivity. Yeah. Especially when, you know, you've been through it before. Don't do it again. <laughs> like It's just dumb, right? What are some things you do today to try and reduce that impulsiveness and try and take that breath between thought and action? I definitely love to meditate. I think it's for me, that is something that's really important is just to really take a little bit of time out of my day for myself with my workouts, things like that. That's something that, you know, is kind of my time and I'm able to reflect on things and then have a clearer mind. I think I'm a big runner too. So running is something that really helps because it allows me the time to think about things and with nobody else around and just my tunes and just hanging out with myself. Those are those are three big things that I definitely make sure I incorporate into every day so that I don't even have that inkling. And I don't know if you struggle with this, but I, I struggle with a lot of dreams about alcoholism and about relapsing. And I feel like it's sort of like a protective mechanism for me. It's like, okay, remember how horrible you felt in this dream, you know, so you wouldn't even go back there, right? So those are all things that I sort of reflect on. And, you know, like that's, that's something that's protecting me and, you know, keep me focused and my mental health in check and things like that. So interesting how our subconscious is doing that for you. Almost this like, hey, don't forget how intense this was when you made that decision. Because I too have had a drinking dream, probably a couple, I think two or three. They just scare the shit out of you. You know, they I do. wake up literally in a cold sweat. It feels so real. It feels like, oh my God, I can't believe I just, and you know, the wake up with a hangover and whatnot is that moment of like, everything's a little blurry. So you do feel like you just woke up from the night of drinking or whatnot. And it's like, I can't believe I did this. And it's all in parts and pieces like it would be the next morning. So it literally takes a second to be like, okay, I'm here. I'm next to is like, everything's, you know, okay. So it's intense. It's intense, but it is that reminder. It's similar. I made a list of all those, oh my God, nights that happened to me over the years of drinking of the like, you know, this could have been enough to stop. And so I made the full list, like wrote down, it was like 37, oh my God, events. And wow. going back to read that is that same kind of idea of like, remind yeah. myself how intense it was. You know, it's almost like maybe you could record a little video to yourself of like, this is what I felt like when I relapsed. This is what it felt like when I woke up that morning or why I want to stay on this path those details start to fade over time, I find. So having that written record of like, okay, all these little things that I really, you know, over the first year of sobriety kept making sure I was documenting for, as they'd come back to my memory, because it does start to fade, you know, enough time passes and you're like, it wasn't that bad. I mean, I had that great job and like, you know, I, everything was good. It was one night. Yeah, I was functioning. It's so true. So true. We're good at convincing ourselves you mentioned one thing when you were talking about, you know, ways of keeping yourself grounded, being able to reduce that impulsiveness was around fitness, right? Like running and whatnot. So let's jump in it. Tell me about Hawk Fit and how you wound up as a business owner. I will. Yeah, it's been a crazy year as, as for most people. I actually left the job that I was at for nine years, literally two weeks before COVID hit, which was to me a blessing because obviously COVID just turned the workforce upside down. And I wasn't really necessarily 
looking for another job right away. Like I was, I was going to take this time to kind of, you know, really reflect on what I wanted to be doing. And so I was still working part-time at a college out here in Calgary and I was, but I could do it all from home. So that was good. But then I, you know, I was just like, I'm kind of over this whole field. Like I just, I'm done. Right. And I've always obviously been involved with fitness and it's just been a huge part of my life. And I had a girlfriend who was doing some Zoom boot camps and she typically runs boot camps, like even in her own backyard. So she has always been a, a really big influence for me. And I joined some of her Zoom classes and I'm like, oh, I love this. Like I, I just love her classes. I've always done her workouts, things like that. And, you know, we were chatting a bit and she's like, well, why, you know, like, you can do your own thing too. Right. And I was like, yeah, I don't know, maybe like it's, that's a lot of work, but you know, I'll think about it. And then I kind of was just like, well, I'm doing these workouts anyways. So why not record them? And, you know, if people want to do them as well, then they can. If not, you know, you just leave it or whatever. So that's where I came up with HawkFit. So I was doing lacrosse workouts during the pandemic. And that was, you know, those were just free workouts I was throwing on Instagram. I think a lot of people were doing them and, you know, really liking them. And it was something to do while you were at home and sort of, you know, feel like you're still training when you can't train. And so I started with that. And then I decided to get into PogFit, which is going to be, you know, my three workouts that I would post a week and essentially pay for your membership and you have access to this library of videos. So if you're not feeling the Monday workout, then you go back and you do a Wednesday or a Friday from another week or whatever. So I started with that. And then I did start to incorporate LaxFit back into the HawkFit component. So in the same thing, it's for you know the lacrosse athletes who are looking to do some at-home training. And so that's kind of just starting as well. But uh, I mean, it's definitely a it's a slow process. And I, you know, it's very humbling because you, you know, you start these things and you're like, I figure, oh, I got, you know, I'll have tons of clients. Like this is a no brainer. Right. And then you're like, well, where are they all? You know? <laughs> if you build it, they will come. Yeah. Yeah. That's you have to think like that. Right. Because it's like, okay. Um, and then I would say to my kids, my kids would be like, you know, how many people do you have? And I'd be like, oh, you know, uh, I think I have like six right now. And then they'd be like, mom, that's like so good. You have six people. Right. And I was like, I need to start thinking more like you guys, right? Like start thinking inside that box, right? It is perspective for sure. You know, it's six is not zero and it's six lives that we're, you know, getting help by you. So, you know, it's like, if you build it, work your absolute ass off, they will come. (laughs) That's the new stuff. Yeah, pretty much. We need that middle marker in there. But, you know, as you turned into an entrepreneur, like what lessons from sobriety do you think you've been able to bring into entrepreneurship? So many. Definitely determination would be one consistency, I think would be another one that has been really big for me because like I sometimes post on my stories and stuff, like some days you just, you really aren't feeling it. And I'm sure you have the same thing, right? Like, oh, okay, I'm doing this again today, right? It's like the motivation isn't there. And so being consistent and determined to put that product out there and for the people who are going to benefit from it and want it, they can have it, right? Just, I mean, so many things. I, I feel like with my sobriety and especially in this day and age, the leadership role definitely comes in. And I think I was always sort of afraid to talk about my sobriety, which seems bizarre because it's like, well, why wouldn't you want to share that with people? Like, you know, that this is a healthy choice that you have made. And I suppose I would always kind of fear that I was being preachy when I'm not, I I know I'm not, but it was just that fear, right? Or the fear of, maybe coming across like you're better than people. Like I I was always had that fear as well. I didn't want that ever to come across like that. But the leadership role, I feel now that I've put it out there, 
people are coming to me and, you know, Hey, can we chat about your sobriety? I'd love to chat about it because I'm going through this and this and this. And then you realize like, okay, I'm really glad that I put this out here because even if it's just one person I've helped or I am helping somebody. And to me, that's a huge accomplishment. And it's like, I will share my story with you until I'm blue in the face. If it's going to, you know, make you think twice or make a change, right. That you're really wanting to make. So I feel like that's a big component as well. And I mean, that just comes with my coaching as well, right? So yeah, it's like the gift that keeps giving because you just don't know who needs to hear it. Someone reaches out, has that kind of curiosity. Like, I love these notes. They're just kind of like, I was just wondering if you would have some time, you know, to talk about what it was like for you. You know, they're nervous to say, like, I think I have a problem. But it is like in hopes that, you know, something in your story resonates with them. And I guess knowing the joy that lied on the other side for you and I to say like, wow, what's been possible in sobriety? Look how much my life has changed. Look how much more fulfilled it is today. When you think about mental health and and this journey you've gone through and, you know, it intertwining with sobriety as well and having to grow even stronger to keep this resolve and stay in sobriety. Like what does mental health mean to you now personally in sobriety, motherhood and business ownership? Mental health is everything. It is at the forefront of everything, especially now that my oldest daughter is turning 15 and just watching some of the things that she's going through, right? And it's like, I never want my kids to go through what I went through growing up. And so mental health and all of that is just always at the forefront of pretty much everything I do. And that's why with, with HawkFit and things like that, you know, one of my biggest hashtags is movement for mental health, because I know how good I feel after I've moved my body. It doesn't matter how I've moved my body, but I've moved my body. And it's just like, you know, getting high on those endorphins, if you will, right? Like that's something that's really big to me and just knowing how good I feel that's why I'm so passionate about it. And because I've been in the depths and the absolute darkest places with my mental health. And I just don't want anybody else to have to go through that really. Right. So if we talk about it more and if in like, you know, getting rid of the stigma and it sounds so cliche, but it still needs to be done. It's just something that in, in any workforce, right. And we see some that are affected more by others. And it's just like, yeah, we need to make this as open as we possibly can so that people don't fear getting help or don't fear talking to somebody about it because that's a deal breaker for some people, right? That this, this is life and death for some people. And so mental health is pretty much at the forefront of every single thing that I do, every single thing. So awesome. It's such a critical piece of the pie, if you will, of the cookie. I was going to try and pull that into dough, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, shameless puns. Um, no, hey, you got to do it. You know, it really is such a critical piece, though, and it's often missing from the conversation around business success or entrepreneurs as well, not feeling comfortable to talk about it and feeling pigeonholed into like, you have to just keep grinding, like you have to keep going. There is no break for you, you know, particularly in those early stages where you don't have the support systems that you need. And we have this fun section of the podcast for the mental health recipe card, which I love. I have, you know, I talk about it as my mental health recipe card of these things I need to keep under control, to keep myself grounded and keep on going day to day. What ingredients give me a couple that are on your mental health recipe card? (laughs) A couple ingredients. I'm definitely going to throw out coaching in there because to me, being able to share a passion with other people and to lead them through that is something that's really big for me. And it does keep me grounded and it reminds me every day why I want to be my best self and, you know, be at my prime. I mean, even just being a mom, I want to be the best 
absolute best mom that I can be for my children because that's, I mean, essentially, I think it's a, a goal for a lot of us, but it, it is a, it's a life goal. And it's something that I want to make sure I am always the best mom that I can be. That's my most important job. I love it. That audio segment's going to make your kids feel very warm and fuzzy inside. I hope they hear that one. <laughs> that is awesome. They're probably listening outside the door. <laughs> nice. Ears up to it. Yeah. All right. Before we go today, it's time for our raw truth room. This is going to be rapid fire questions to reveal some raw truths about what makes you, you. Are you ready? Okay. Yeah. Let's do this. What's your biggest guilty pleasure? <sighs> Definitely Subway cookies. Oh, nice. That was left field, but I, I feel it. Like they have that white chocolate raspberry one sometimes or whatever. Oh. I love it. Even okay, just the great. M&Ms. I don't know. Even just the M&Ms yeah. to me, it's like, mm, my fave. <laughs> What's the thing that makes you the happiest? Definitely my family. What is one thing you can't live without? I'm going to say my silk pillowcase. <laughs> <laughs> These are so creative. What's one thing you could live without? Uh, laundry. Nice. Yeah. What's a song you sing in the shower? Uh, let it rain. All right. Fill in the blank. Blank gets me out of bed in the morning. Coffee. And finally, what goal do you most want to achieve this year? Just to continue to grow HawkFit. So awesome. I'm super excited for you. This is maybe the most critical part of the podcast where you get to drop where people can reach you, where they can learn more about HawkFit and just get in touch. Yeah, absolutely. My website's probably the best place to go, which is just hawkfit.com. I should point out that Hawk has an E on it though, just in case. I'm on social media, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. I don't do the Twitter thing, but you know, you can pretty much find me anywhere. I don't do the tweets. Love it. Man, well, extra special thanks. Like, thank you for coming on and being so open, getting real with me today, having this honest, unfiltered conversation about your journey through mental health, sobriety, relapse, and all the intricate parts of what makes you human and the real emotions behind it. So thank you for coming on. I'm so honored that you had me. Thank you so much. This has been an awesome opportunity. To all the listeners out there, I hope you're feeling inspired to go out and make a change in the world. Until next time, I'm Kelsey, and that was Dope's Soberpreneur. But wait, there's more. Are you drooling after all this cookie dough talk? Jump over to dope.com. It's D-O-U-G-H-P.com to order some of our edible and bakeable cookie dough. You can use code KEEPITREAL for 10% off at checkout. Thanks, and have a dope day.